my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a fantastic week. A great show for you today. I was joined by the great Stephen Gutowski, uh, founder of The Reload, uh, and it was a great chat. Uh, Stephen is, is one of my most requested uh, return guests, and uh, nobody knows more about gun policy or the firearms industry than Stephen. So we uh, had a great chat about guns and gun policy. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, before I get to Stephen, if you guys if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you your podcasts make sure to subscribe if you are an itunes user please take a couple seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review i'd really appreciate that and if you like the show and want to get involved you can support us monthly over on patreon patreon.com slash the no gimmicks podcast all right without further ado the great stephen katowski all right guys we're here at the great stephen katowski founder of the reload how have you been man i'm doing good how are you I'm doing great. So a ton to discuss, as always. Um, and I've been waiting to, to get into too much detail on all the recent gun policy news until I can get you back on the show. And there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of it. Yeah. Good news yes. and bad news. Um, this summer has been wild on the gun front. Obviously, no, nobody knows that better than you. But, um, you know, some, some, some good news and some bad news from people like myself, people that value the Second Amendment and, and property rights generally. Um, let, let's go all the way back to the SCOTUS decision, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Talk us through the decision and why it's a win for gun owners. Yeah, well, that's a really big win uh, for gun rights advocates, certainly. Uh, effectively, the Supreme Court ruled that New York's may issue gun carry law, which allowed uh, government officials to subjectively decide whether or not somebody had a good reason to need uh, to carry a firearm, uh, even if they had passed all of the uh, the training that was required and the background check required, they would could still be denied uh, based off of this uh, good reason clause. And and good reason might sound reasonable, right? But uh, in practice, generally it meant you know self defense is not a good reason. Uh, you know, generic desire for self-defense, living in a dangerous neighborhood is not a good reason. Being a member of a, you know, persecuted group, for instance, is, would not be a good reason. Um, you had to have a specific documented threat against your life that was continuing and that you had, you know, police documentation of. And even then, you could still be denied. So in practice, what it meant was very few people actually got permits. Um, New York, I believe the estimate was somewhere in the 100,000 range uh, for how many active permits they had, according to the, the uh, uh, John Lotz organization, which was, did a study in uh, 2021 on all of the, how many permits each state has. And if you compare that to a state like Pennsylvania, you know, Pennsylvania had, I believe, 1.2 million um, and, or 1.4, I think it is. And so, you know, you get the idea. Basically, there's a massive gap in how many permits actually get issued uh, between states where, that don't have this subjective standard and states that do. And so the court found that that was unconstitutional, that it violated the Second Amendment. And even more importantly than that, uh, even though that does affect, you know, only six states, according to the court, had the, these sorts of laws, but they happen to be some of the biggest states, so California, New York, right. Massachusetts, New Jersey, uh, Maryland. And they have probably about 25% of the, the population of the United States live in those those uh, six states. So it's a lot of people affected. But what's more important than that, or uh, will have a longer term effect than the specific issue of gun carry, is how the court told lower courts they need to decide gun cases moving forward. So right. this has been a big issue for the last 12 years, uh, 14 years, I guess now, since Heller was decided that these lower courts have been using uh, a lot of them, uh, a two-step standard to decide gun cases. And the result of that two-step standard, which one is to first step is to decide whether or not 
the Second Amendment right is implicated by the, the law in question, the law, the law that's being challenged. And then the second step was to, it was effectively a balancing test to intermediate scrutiny, um, which looked at whether or not, you know, the, the government has a, a, a strong enough interest in regulating that action to overcome, you know, the, the constitutional protections. And effectively, in practice, this meant that uh, any time a court was using that two-step standard, it was upholding uh, a gun law, right? So the Ninth Circuit famously never overturned any gun laws. Right, right. Um, and, and so the court didn't like that. Uh, gun rights groups have been complaining about this for, you know, uh, 14 years. And the court now, and, you know, you've had certain justices like Thomas who ended up writing this opinion, uh, complaining about it themselves in a lot of cases where the court decided not to take action. Sometimes Thomas would write a dissent and say, you know, the second amendment is not a second class, right, but we're treating it that way. And he repeated that again in this opinion. And now he's saying that the only viable test for gun laws is one of texts informed by tradition. So, uh, effectively, if the law did not exist or an analog, something similar to it, uh, didn't exist during the founding era or even the, uh, era of the 14th amendment, you know, the reconstruction era, then it's, uh, presumptively unconstitutional if it restricts, you know, if it goes against the text of the second amendment, which, uh, you know, so that, that puts a lot of modern, uh, gun control laws, you know, in the crosshair of the courts now. So this, this gun carry law in New York was, uh, you know, a hundred years old, but there was nothing similar to it at the founding era. There's nothing where, uh, they restricted carry in a completely, uh, subjective manner like New York had been doing under the Sullivan law for the last, you know, century. Uh, so it got struck down and you're likely to see a lot of other gun laws in that vein get struck down. Things like assault weapons bans or, um, you know, purchase to permit their permit, sorry, permit to purchase laws, th things of that nature that weren't really around and nothing really similar to them were around are likely to get struck down eventually under this law, uh, this ruling. Yeah, I uh, I love the precision of Justice Thomas's <laughs> opinion here. He he definitely chose his words um, carefully. And and what I keep getting asked by friends in say New Jersey or Illinois, other states with um, similar may issue laws, um, they, they just want to know how it, it's going to affect them. If this truly does open the door for other lawsuits that could result in in the overturning these you know oppressive gun laws in other states. Um, over at the Reload, uh, Jake Fogelman reported yesterday that Hawaii's attorney general, in compliance with the SCOTUS decision, instructed police to start issuing concealed carry permits. Uh, last week, I believe Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, ended their good reason policy. Um, so what, yep. what do you say to the folks in, in these other blue states that have been waiting for their, their Second Amendment rights to be returned? I, I, it does seem like uh, we could have a serious domino effect here. Yeah, I think when it comes to these May issue laws— uh, or anything that's extremely similar to the good reason clause that they had in New York, those will get struck down. They're not going to survive. It might take a little while, uh, unfortunately, I guess, if you're waiting to get one of these permits. Uh, it might take a little bit of time, months, maybe a year in some cases, probably, I would think, months. Uh, because, you know, I don't see a way that they're going to be able to just institute the same law by another name and not immediately get, you know, kicked out of court for it. Uh, what you, what you're more likely to see and what you're already seeing in states like New York or California are attempts to push the limits in other ways. Right. So, uh, and you've seen this, a great example of this is Washington, DC. Uh, Washington DC is a, is a really good guide for how things are going to go because they've already been through this a couple of years ago, right? They had a total ban on gun carry, which got struck down in federal court. Uh, then they instituted a May issue law, like the one in New York or Maryland, uh, California, uh, and that got struck down as well. And instead of appealing, because they were afraid that they would lose at the Supreme Court, they accepted that ruling and instead instituted what up, to, up until right now uh, has been the strictest shall issue 
uh, permitting regime. So shall issue is where you go through the the required training and the background check and you pass those things and you, they have to give you the permit. But the wrinkle with that is there's a lot of other things they can do that are likely constitutional underneath this ruling. Um, you know, the court has said uh, in Heller and McDonald and Bruin now that there are certainly restrictions that are uh, presumptively constitutional. Things like uh, restrictions on uh, unusual and dangerous weapons. So they've used that to talk about, you know, how you could still rest restrict M16s, you know, fully automatic weapons. Uh, and then they've talked about sensitive places restrictions. So things like courthouses uh, or stadiums could, could probably fall into those categories and be, you know, gun-free zones without impacting the, you know, violating the Second Amendment, according to the court. That that's what their their current logic is on this stuff. And so what you're going to see and what you've seen in D.C. already is, sure, you can get the permit, uh, but you're going to have to do 16 hours of training. That's only uh, that's training that you can only get in D.C. because it's a specialized program that you have to be certified by D.C. police to teach. Um, it costs a significant amount of money. It's like one hundred dollars for the the fingerprinting and the. Um, the application fees and then the, because the class is, uh, the training is done the way it is, it's probably another $250, $350 to take the class. And then once you get the permit, um, first of all, they'll, they'll have much shorter uh, time between renewal as, than other states do. Uh, most likely DC does that. It, you know, you have to renew relatively quickly. Uh, and go through the whole process again. Uh, I mean, not the whole thing, but you know, there's a renewal process. And then you'll also have a lot of restrictions on where you can carry. So in DC, for instance, um, you can't carry on the Metro. So you can't carry on any public transit, which, I mean, that, that sort of eliminates the point of the permit for quite right. a lot of people, I would right. imagine. Yeah. Uh, quite a lot of poor people, probably a lot of minorities uh, who live you know, in Anacostia, they don't necessarily have cars. I mean, this extends to all kinds of people living in D.C., but yeah. but uh, presumably it impacts the lower-income folks more. Um, you can't carry, you know, um, they actually created a special uh, roaming gun-free zone that follows diplomat anyone under diplomatic protection in D.C., there's a, a de facto gun-free zone that follows them around everywhere they go. Um and so I guess how's that even how's that enforceable or <laughs> realistic? That doesn't... Well, I guess you're supposed to run away if you see those people coming. Well, <laughs> well I do practice... anyway. I, I do anyway. But yeah. right, right, fair. Uh, in practice, they have to warn you first. So, yeah, I don't know how that <laughs> ever. I don't know if they've ever once actually warned them because how would they even know if you're know. carrying concealed? Uh, of course, like it's just kind of uh uh, fig leaf thing that they do, but it is, it's, you know, it just shows the extent and then permitted events. So if there's a protest that pops up, uh, and they've started doing this in other States, Virginia has this now, uh, these, uh, any event that is permitted or should be permitted, uh, it's, it becomes a gun free zone. So even if they don't have a permit, uh, if there's enough people gathered <laughs> in a place, it's a now a gun free zone. Um, and without now, again, there's supposed to be warnings associated before they can arrest you for these sorts of things. Uh, so I, I think in practice, it's, you know, nothing, th these don't mean anything. Um, but you know, they show you the, what they're trying to do. And, and New York has taken this a step further. Yeah. Let's so talk the, about that. Cause the, the New York, New York Democrats seem to be flailing a little bit on this bizarre, talk us through this bizarre measure that they're trying to implement. I, I, I guess, I mean, the news cycle's been so crazy, I'm actually not up to date on, on where they are, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they essentially <laughs> wanted to, to prevent people from, from carrying guns. Uh, they wanted to make citizens submit their, their social media activity so that bureaucrats can, mm -hmm. I, I don't really know, make sure they aren't Republicans <laughs> before they're allowed to carry a gun. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's, I don't know what would prevent you on, on social media from being able to defend your family. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, I have to imagine um, they're, they're really cruising for a bruising in the courts. I mean, they just, well, I, I, this seems wildly unconstitutional on its face. Well, I, I guess they're probably, uh, you know, the, the law doesn't necessarily say what they're looking for or what would be disqualifying in terms of your tweets or your Facebook posts 
presumably, uh, if you, you know, a, def- uh, a supporter of the law would say that they're looking for, you know, vi- indications of violence or threats that might be posted in the city, you know, like these uh, mass shooters that you've seen. You know, some of them will, will post their 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 threats and their violent. Something uh, tells me that isn't intuitions. the goal. Some, something tells yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, that's that's probably what the they would uh, how they've uh, defended it. Uh, but what it what it does is, or the way the way it works is, they have instead of um, so they had the good reason clause, right? And that's what got technically was at the center of this case. But uh, California and New York also have what are called good moral character clauses, right? Uh, and so it's kind of the same thing. Uh, in a sense, uh, you know, the good reason clause is you have to actively show that you have like a need for the permit, I guess, above and beyond, you know, an, uh, a normal uh, need for self-defense. Whereas the good moral character clause, show, you have to show that you are an especially good person or, or what, you know, as judged by the person who issues the permits, which, again, is just another subjective like. If they don't like you, they can just deny you a permit. If you, yeah, if they don't like the things you tweet, maybe it's it's. And then you have to, you also have to get four references, um, <laughs> you know, like it's a job application or whatever. So you know, it's. I do think that those are probably ripe to get struck down quickly. There's a lot of stuff in that new New York law that's ripe to get struck down because it's almost like they passed it with the intention of of getting sent back to the Supreme Court to get struck down, frankly. You look at some of these provisions. I mean, you know, we talked about the D.C. gun-free zone stuff, which is already, which is now being challenged um, in court again by Dick Heller, actually. Um, And I have a piece coming from him, you know, where I talked to him. uh, That'll be up soon on the reload. But but, uh, New York's going even further than what D.C. has done. Uh, New York is now making it so that everywhere... Every piece of private property is presumptively a gun-free zone unless the proprietor puts out a sign that says that they do want people to carry there. Um, and, you know, the the governor herself, when she was asked about, like, where would it be possible to legally carry with a permit under this new – well, I mean, they made the entire the entirety of Times Square is a gun-free zone, the whole <laughs> area. Um, and she said, you know, probably a few streets – you'd be able to carry legally uh, under the, and it's like, well, okay, you're just going to like, they explicitly talk about this in the Bruin ruling, right? There's a, there's concurrence by Roberts and Kavanaugh, which by the way, like reading that concurrence, that gives you an idea of where the court is really at because what those two want is going to determine how the court comes down. Right. Right. Because you've got the, uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was a six, three ruling, and it could be uh, it, it could be five four if those guys go the other way, right? Yeah. And so, uh, reading their concurrence is probably a really good idea if you want to craft laws to that'll w- hold up under Bruin. And in their concurrence, they specifically talk about they say, look, shall issue laws are fine, permitting is fine. It's just this this subject this completely subjective aspect to it. Where the applicant has to like prove to the the issuing official that they have a good reason uh, based on you know the the issue the issuing official's subjective judgment that's not okay regular you know shall issue permitting where they just have to do the the training and and pass the background check those are objective standards you can do that um, but <laughs> at the same time if they do mention that if a shall issue law were basically de- designed and run in a way that would keep people from getting permits or being able to carry, that it would become uh, unconstitutional, you know, as applied, basically. Like the law might be okay, but if you're if you have like a two year waiting period to get the permit, well, uh, then yeah, it's not then it's then it's not okay. Or if you try to uh, you know, and then Thomas, in his majority opinion, talks about sensitive places in particular and says, you know, yeah, sensitive places are, uh, you know, you can ban guns from sensitive places. But it, it's absurd to try and argue that the entirety of the island of Manhattan is a sensitive place just because, you know, the, there's presumptively police protection and, and a lot of people are there. Right. So 
which is kind of what they tried to argue in court about this, uh, uh, about the, the current law. So they're, they're just sort of doubling down on what they had been doing and just doing it in a slightly different way. And it's like, uh, you know, they're just looking to get uh, taken right back up to the, to the Supreme Court. It's just, uh, you know, now maybe, of course, in our legal system, it might take a while. And the other, the other thing you have to keep in mind here about why they might do a strategy like this is between, you know, we were just talking about, it's been 14 years since Heller, right? Yeah. It's been 12 years since McDonald, which uh, incorporated the second amendment to the States. And uh, so, it, you know, the court has taken forever to actually follow up on its ruling and it's kind of let the lower courts, you know, do what they want. And, so now, uh, if they do that again, right, if they don't take another Second Amendment case for a decade, that that's kind of what you're counting on, I guess, if you're passing this New York law. Because, you know, maybe the Second Circuit or the Ninth Circuit in California is going to be much less uh, harsh about your new laws that are basically the same thing in, with different language. But if it gets to the Supreme Court, they're going to you're basically creating another precedent that is going against what what you want if you're a New York legislator. And so, I mean, I think they're counting on that same inaction to happen again, but it seems much less likely that that's going to be the case this time around. Right. Um, you know, it's always funny. I always I always have to, when we talk about these these crazy either laws or proposals in places like D.C. or New York, I, I just have to remind the audience, you know, on on these on gun policy, the 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 right or the the Second Amendment advocates or, or the more libertarian worldview is winning. I mean, we we've made, we went from what in terms of constitutional carry states? I think we went from eighteen to twenty five in the last calendar year, or <laughs> nineteen to twenty five. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just uh, and we're up to one hundred and twenty million people living in states where you are. Um, you're allowed to, to defend, your, defend yourself without permission from the government. I mean, I I have, you know, we are a constitutional carry state in Ohio. I, I, I still renew my permit so I can carry in, um, in just about everywhere other than a government building. And, you know, with my Ohio permit and the constitutional carry states, I can carry in like 39 states, I think, 40 states now. It's a, uh, you know, it's pretty great. So it's like, you know, as, uh, as crazy as New York Democrats are, as, as crazy as these policies in D.C., it's like, we're winning. We're still we still have the upper hand. We're still winning. Uh, but let's talk about some bad news here. We do have to talk about the gun control package that was just signed into law. 100% Democratic support, aided and abetted by the Senate Republicans who hate Republicans. Everybody here listening knows who the usual offenders are. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff in here from my perspective. The the funding mechanism um, for encouraging states to pass red flag laws seems to be the most egregious part of it to me. Um, mm. It just seems to me like these red flag laws, every single one of them will eventually become weapons for the left to to go after the political opponents. Hope I'm wrong. I'm a libertarian. I love being wrong. <laughs> when I'm wrong, <laughs> that means the country's doing well. So I, I have read a lot of uh, right wingers or at least center right uh, type writers and pundits downplaying this new law, saying, well, you know, it's not that bad. It could have been much worse. Um, of course, I, anything could always be much worse. But uh, what's the truth in, in all this? What exactly does this new law do? Yeah, well, so to start with that red flag provision, I do think that effectively it doesn't do much um, because okay. of the concessions that Corning got at the end of that. Now, obviously, you can uh, – there, there's a plenty of political debate to be had about whether or not this law – is a smart move for for Senate Republicans to get on board with or not, um, or whether they're going to get anything out of it, and whether whether it's going to have any real impact on crime. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot you could say on those topics, but when it comes to the red flag funding provision, um, they they made it so that you don't have to you could use that funding for basically anything. Right. Um, you can use it for other kinds of intervention programs that you already have in your state. So I, I think it's extremely unlikely that it will end up encouraging any state to that doesn't already have a red flag law to pass one. Okay. Like I think that's the pract the practical impact of it is very low. It will give funding to states that already have them. Um, so, you know, if you don't like red flag laws, certainly there's still criticism there of them because it, it provides federal money for these programs. Um, and, and at the same time, it also 
there was an opportunity there to, I think, address a lot of the concerns that people have about red flag laws. Because when I hear the critiques of them, I often think, well, these sound like things that are fairly addressable, right? You know, there's there's uh, concerns about due process. There's concerns, uh, you know, uh, about, uh, like you mentioned, uh, the, the laws being used uh, nefariously by by people. So, you know, it seems to me you could you could write a red flag law that addresses those issues, you know, making sure that there's uh, stringent punishments. I think, you know, a lot of states have. It is a crime to falsely red flag somebody, but but obviously, you know, there's probably uh, more that could be done about um, how the how those uh, how it's policed, you know, and how how strictly it, it works. There's there's plenty of criticisms of the laws that I feel like you could actually address, and this doesn't do any of that, right? right? It has it has it has a whole basically like a model red flag law. It basically it allows you to get federal funding if your red flag law has these certain protections in it. But unfortunately, uh, which sounds nice, it sounds like that's the direction most people would want to head in like, Oh, okay, you could do this, but only if you have these certain protections. But unfortunately when you read the language, um, they're, they're very vague, uh, about, they don't really set anything. You have to be able to provide your own lawyer. They don't have to provide a lawyer for you. Uh, because these are civil proceedings, of course, so that's another issue that people don't like about about these uh, these sort of things. But I mean, I feel like if you if they were similar to something like uh, domestic violence uh, restraining orders, um, and they were they were, you know, uh, they they properly addressed a lot of the concerns people have about them, it might be a more uh, um, popular policy. But they didn't really uh, actually do that in this bill. Because they they make you know uh, they feign at this idea that they're well you have to meet these requirements to get the funding for your red flag law but from my understanding uh, and I talked to um, uh, James Charles from uh, uh, he was the head of Duke's Firearms Law Center and, and he said that all of the current bills all the current laws that exist would meet the the requirements in this bill and so basically. It's not going to one. I, so it's not going to likely encourage any state to adopt a red flag law that doesn't already have one. And two, it's not likely to make any state change its current red flag laws to be more uh, to include more robust protections for individual rights. So it's kind of a, a lose lose, I think, in that in that situation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, in other there are days- there are other other more um, important. I think are more impactful provisions in that bill, though, or that law, specifically the ones that deal with um, juvenile criminal records. Right. It kind of the the law kind of remakes the entire juvenile criminal justice system in the United States and hasn't really gotten much coverage for that, because the way it works is that if you have a criminal, a juvenile criminal record, that includes uh, any sort of felony or uh, misdemeanor domestic violence conviction from when you were a juvenile, those records are now going to be in the NICS system forever, no matter how old you are. If you're 90 years old and you've been able to legally buy guns your entire life since, I don't know, stealing a car when you were 16 or whatever, uh, you know, hacking, hacking into your school's computer system to change your grades, right? It's famous movie, you know, uh, cliche. Right. Uh, those are probably felonies. And uh, if you were convicted of those as a juvenile, now you won't be able to buy guns anymore, not legally. Or <laughs> actually, the way they've done it, for some reason, it seems like a drafting error, frankly. You, No one will be able to legally sell you a gun. You're not prohibited from owning guns for some reason. But you can't be sold guns or ammunition legally under this provision. Yeah, it's like a complete restructure of how juvenile criminal records are viewed. I mean, I don't, I don't really yep. know how. Uh, uh, honestly, that that's another, that's something else that I, I wouldn't be shocked to, to find the Supreme Court deliberating over that in the next year or two as well. Um, yeah, just because that is that would be a, a complete departure from, uh, you know, hundreds of years of of law um, regarding those juvenile records. Yeah, uh-huh. basically your juvenile records will follow you around forever now. There's yeah. no usually they're expunged after you come of age, right? For depending on 
you know, if a crime is serious enough, you might get charged as an adult, right? right like if right. you murder somebody. Um, but for most juvenile records, this is the whole concept of the juvenile criminal justice system, right? Is that we're trying to reform these kids uh, and make them useful members of society and not have their criminal, their mistakes from childhood, follow them into adulthood if, if we can help it, right? That's the kind, I mean, you could, there's plenty of criticism about whether the system works that way, but, but that's the idea. And now that idea is effectively gone, at least in terms of gun ownership and, uh, you know, any sort of job that requires that where you're going to have a NICS, NICS check for your, uh, to get the, the, the role. So probably law enforcement is out of the picture for you. Uh, you military, know, because you can't, yeah. yeah, I mean, how, how are you going to be able to do any job that requires you having a firearm security, uh, long, any sort of federal law enforcement, you know, so I don't know. It's a pretty huge change that no, it really hasn't gotten much attention. Even to become like a school teacher or something like that. I mean, yeah, yeah it, would, it, would ex- it would exclude kids from doing just about anything. <laughs> you know, it would, it would be I mean, anything uh, that requires a NICS check. I don't, I don't yeah. know exactly beyond gun sales what that is, but. But uh, I presume it's it's another, I mean anything that requires you to have a gun for your profession is is immediately out the door, and I wonder what that's going to do for people who are already uh, in that. Like I'm sure that there are law enforcement agents that have a juvenile record that didn't recommit after that and were able to you know effectively reintegrate into society and have a career. Uh, what's going to you know? So the, a lot of that stuff is not has really gone to the wayside just because there's been so much that's happened, you know, in this short period. But that I think that's the biggest thing from that law that nobody really gets. Um, there is also, of course, the most people have focused on the 18 to 20 year old uh, change in the background check system, which is also a big deal because of, you know, there's some debate over this. Cornyn's office says it doesn't create a uh, de facto waiting period, uh, but Senator Chris Murphy from uh, uh, Connecticut, he says it does. And they were the two leading negotiators on the bill. And if you read the text, to me, I think it does. Because effectively, you know, they have to now, uh, for the next 10, you know, it sunsets after 10 years. Because the idea is that uh, after 10 years, all the juvenile records will have made their way into the NICS system. And so you won't need this weird specialized check that they do for 18 to 20 year olds. But um, effectively there's, they, they now have the FBI has a three day waiting, a three day period just to find out whether or not you have any indicators that you might have a prohibiting record, if that makes sense. So basically the law says they have to return a, a result as soon as possible, but they have up to three days just to look for, uh, an indicator that there that you might have a prohibiting record if you're 18 to 20 years old, and so and they have to reach out to your lo- local police, your your state's like mental health record repository, and your state's you know juvenile criminal record repository, and so uh, they have to how how that process is going to work in practice is is a big question, and it's hard for me to see a way that that's going to happen instantaneously instantaneously, like it does for all the other background checks. And then if they find something that indicates you might have a record, they then have 10, they have a full 10 days from the start of the check to look into whether or not you do have that or to find the actual record. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. it sounds convoluted, but that's how it works. And, and it's hard to see it not creating basically just a de facto three day waiting period for all 18 to 20 year olds buying guns now. Right. Um, so this week, Biden's pick to head the ATF, Steve uh, Dedelbach, I believe it's pronounced, um, was confirmed, I believe yesterday, 48-46, every Democrat plus uh, Republicans, Rob Portman and Susan Collins, which, side note, Biden's at 30%, man. He's, he's in the water. No idea why why Republicans keep handing him wins. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, apparently, they hate their own constituents, but I digress. Um, but honestly, man, this summer's been so wild. There's been so much to cover. This one has even largely got past me. So who is this guy? I'm assuming he's not as bad as, as Chipman, you know, the, the Waco kid, uh, who, who you had a not, not a small uh, role in, in taking down. Uh, thanks for that, by the way. Um, so who is this guy? What does it mean uh, for this man to head the ATF? So Dettelbach is kind of like a milquetoast version of 
David Shipman, I would, you know, is the shorthand I would give you. He wasn't um, physically at Waco. Yeah. No, I mean to be fair to <laughs> to Chipman, he was he didn't go he didn't show up at Waco until afterwards. I know. It I wasn't know. him in that picture. I know. Um, but but either way, I mean his Chipman's big problem was that he was a paid gun control activist for like decades. Right. Right. Uh, after he left years, the ATF. Yeah. yeah. I mean he and he was extremely bombastic and had a lot of comments out in public insulting gun owners and he he had a Waco conspiracy of his own, yeah. which was that he had claimed that. A helicopter had been a police helicopter had been shot down by a 50 caliber rifle at Waco, which wasn't <laughs> wasn't true. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then obviously he had the racial uh, complaints against him. Um, Dettelbach was uh, a career prosecutor for the most part. Uh, he was the U.S. attorney for Northern District of Ohio um, and, until uh, you know under Obama, and then he got uh, fired by Trump and. The real controversies around him came from that period when he ran for attorney general of Ohio as a Democrat. He was the nominee. He lost. But during that race, uh, you know, he obviously got fairly political. And so he endorsed assault weapons bans, which he then stood by during his confirmation hearing. Um, But similar to Chipman, for some reason, he could not define what an assault weapon is. So he, he was in this position of. Funny Being how that works. For a ban on assault weapons, but not w- having a definition for what an assault weapon is. It's very bizarre. I don't know why they both did that um, or how, why no one could even give them like – I mean there's a couple defi- – it, it is a shifting term, of course. Uh, there's, it depends on what state you're in, what an assault weapon is, but um, you could at least give the 94 definition. It's not that hard. <laughs> um, right. Frankly, right. like it, it's a couple lines of, you know, oh, it's a – a center fire semi-automatic rifle with the, with a detachable magazine that has two of the following features: a pistol, uh, you know, a, a pistol grip, a, uh, adjustable stock, uh, flash suppressor, you know, a, a bayonet lug, right? Uh, was the other? This is the fun one. Uh, the the barrel shroud, right? The the shoulder thing that goes up. Right. <laughs> right? Um, but you know, it's not that hard to give that definition. So I don't know why they both floundered around like that but they know, uh, either they way know it's, they know it's ridiculous if you actually say it out loud you know, i guess rather, i mean yeah. it's just it seems weird it seems more absurd to say you're forbanning something that you can't define but but they both did that anyway uh you know dental buck uh was is definitely less bombastic he has fewer of those sort of um insulting comments out there than shipman did he was he's a less abrasive guy he's more low-key generally he's his pl- foray into politics was much shorter than than uh shipman's was but frankly they both seem like they're on the same wavelength as far as gun regulation is concerned so i you know uh, why portman and collins were against shipman but for dettelbach is a little bit confusing beyond just the sort of surface level he's not as bombastic but um yeah, uh, you know, uh, well, that and I th- I mean, I think the real key right here was uh, Chipman's hearing. Uh, he didn't or sorry, uh, Dettelbach's hearing happened the day after Uvalde. Right. And so, yeah, like he got through because there's more energy to do um, something, something on on right. gun policy. And so confirming the president's ATF pick is a pretty low, a pretty small ask on that. Uh, continuum. Uh, and so, you know, it was that, that the urgency injected by this horrible attack in, uh, on Robin elementary school was, was probably what really was enough to get him over the line. Um, and then I just think, uh, you know, Chipman seemed to have rubbed, uh, you know, some of the democratic senators the wrong way during his, his process and, and his public persona was, was just a little bit too much for them to stomach. And so uh, Dettelbach, again, like, yeah, he got into the politics. He even had a racial incident himself, but he wasn't, unlike Chipman, he wasn't accused of wrongdoing. He was actually meant to be renominated for that U.S. attorney position by Sherrod Brown, the Ohio Democratic senator, but uh, last year in 2021. But that got railroad, or that got uh, derailed by. Uh, civil rights activists in Ohio who didn't like 
uh, including Tamir Rice's mother, who didn't like um, the process. He didn't like just, well, we'll just renominate the, renominate the same white guy that had the position before, and we're not going to even pretend to search for other candidates. So they, so that torpedoed his renomination. But weirdly, he had the same exact situation at the ATF because uh, the ATF had an acting director who uh, Marvin in Marvin Richardson, who was a black. Right. career agent at the agency right. who was, uh, you know, who was liked by the industry, but strongly disliked by the gun control groups. Um, and, you know, there's a whole hit piece in the New York Times against him. And and they even instead of considering him for the permanent position, they demoted him on his way out like a few <laughs> months ago yeah. just to kind of kick him in the in the ass. Uh, yeah. Pardon my French. But but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that didn't, um, you know, uh, we reported on it. The National African American Gun Association was up in arms about it, but uh, the other civil rights groups, you know, the ACLU didn't didn't care, and NAACP didn't say anything. Uh, Noble, which is the uh, organization organization for Black law enforcement agents, um, they actually endorsed Edelbuck. So the the White House did a pretty good job, PR wise, of sort of countering that. Uh, that aspect of, of this confirmation fight, uh, they did it. The white house did a much better job generally with Dettelbuck, I would say too. Uh, that was one of the big complaints that Chipman had was that he didn't get enough support from the white house. Although I still think like that he, he spent all, he did a whole media tour trashing the white house afterwards. And to me, it was still a little <laughs> ridiculous because like clearly he was the gun control groups pick. I don't think Biden cared one way or the other about him. No. Um, and the problem was <laughs> mainly him. Like you see, Dettelbach got through because he's just a less uh, in-your-face version of David Chipman. Uh, so anyway, um, it's it's relatively important because the ATF has had three different acting directors the last three years. They haven't had a, a confirmed director since 2015, and this is the first one. There's only the second confirmed director. It was only became a confirmed position in 2006, but. But so this is only the second one to actually get confirmed. And it means he'll serve for probably, you know, well, I mean, at least the rest of Biden's term, which, right. you know, so it might not be that long in, in reality. But if Biden wins reelection, he could serve up to six years, probably. Um, and so he can do more to reshape how the agency actually approaches regulating the industry. Um, and, and so that's going to be fairly significant. It's this these things are wins, right? These two. The law, the new bipartisan gun law, and and this ATF confirmation—they're wins, but they're really not the wins that the gun control groups or even Biden himself wants. Um, so it's it's an interesting time because you got wins for the gun control uh, movement in these two things, and then you got probably a more significant win long term in for the gun rights movement in the Supreme Court ruling. So uh, you know how that balances out for people is 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 interesting. Well, from my perspective, I can only hope that them not getting everything they want will kind of uh, bring the temperature down. They'll kind of get complacent. They'll kind of be pissed off at Biden for, you know, comp- quote unquote, compromising. And then they don't show up to vote in November. One, you know, a guy can hope. But uh, uh, I, I know I already kept you longer than uh, than I said I was going to. My apologies, as always. Uh, that's a frequent problem on this podcast. But I have a couple quick questions from the audience and actually one from myself as well. Um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll try to burn through them real quick. Uh, none of these questions are policy related, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. you are a, a gun safety instructor as well who puts in a ton of range time. I imagine you're familiar with just about every gun on the market, at least every caliber on the market. Um, so just a couple quick questions. Um, anytime I talk guns on the podcast or answer listener, listener mail, I get this question. Um, what pistol do you prefer to carry on a budget? <laughs> now, I don't know what I, I don't know what uh, this person meant by on a budget. So I'll just throw a random 600 bucks. Let's call it 600 bucks. So sure. like, what is hey, like you a, can... And you can factor in like anything you you care about, like reliability, concealability, right. affordability. So just, you know, define it however you would like. But give us a couple suggestions. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, there's a lot of options at that price point, uh, although oh, inflation yeah. might be pushing some of those prices up. But, right. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, uh, for me personally, uh, instead of a, I'll give you a couple examples of it. But I would recommend the uh, a single stack nine millimeter subcompact. That's what I carry, yep. uh, just because it's a great combination of um, size and uh, 
you know, stopping power in nine millimeters, a, a solid round. It's obviously the most popular round for law enforcement and, and for carry now. And, um, and, you know, you get a lot of capacity with nine millimeter as well. And these, these subcompact nine, nine millimeters, uh, so single stacks or like whatever you want to call them, like hat, you know, one and a half stacks, maybe for some of the, the newer ones, right, but right. they can hold a lot of rounds in a tiny f- footprint. Right. And so they're very comfortable to carry with the right setup, the right holster setup. And, um, and they're easy to conceal for men and women. Right. But, uh, so for me, I'd probably, you know, I, I often carry my old, uh, Springfield XDS, uh, 4.0 which is like the longer barrel version of this xds yep. they've obviously upgraded now to the uh was it the hellcat right yep. is the springfield version yep. but uh sigs you know and then glock glock has the 43 and 43x and uh the 48 which are all which are all pretty solid options if you like glocks the same it's in that same category of uh um you know single single stack subcompacts but uh, now, you know, these days when they were first coming out, you know, you were happy with eight, eight or nine rounds, right. uh, 10 rounds if you're, if you're really ambitious, but, uh, you know, you might have to put your own base plate on there to get a couple extra rounds. Right. In. But now, now like they're, you know, these things are like clown cars with their capacity, you know, ever since the SIG P365 came out, which, uh, I think, you know, I think a P365 XL is going to be my next carry gun. I really should upgrade i have a 365 i have one of the early runs now, this is one thing i would watch out for those early runs of those guns you know the guns are kind of like video games now where they're putting out like uh stuff that's kind of still in development all these all these early subcompacts these early versions all had issues oh, you yeah. know whether it's the s the the smith and wesson mmp shield which i used to carry uh you know the springfield xds had issues the 365 had issues. Mine had light primer strikes issues um, that maybe not carry it, right? But I think that, you know, they take a little while to get ironed out. And it's not probably not a great practice, frankly, uh, for these companies to be doing because, you know, unlike a video game, unlike Cyberpunk, you know, 2077, <laughs> it's not life or death whether or not that game works for me. But if your gun doesn't work when you need it to, well, that's a real problem, isn't and it? And you can't just download an update either to update. No, your, you can't. <laughs> your side so, you know, you might want to wait uh, a couple production lines into one of these new guns before you pick them up and carry it. And you want to you want to test it out and put like a, you know, five, five hundred thousand rounds through it at the range before you are confident in carrying it. Um, but, yeah, that's where I would go is the single stack sub subcompacts. Probably right now my favorite one is that that's. Uh, Sig P365XL. Yeah, that's nice. My my brother uh, carries the Hellcat too, and that is a really nice gun. Twelve plus. Yeah, gun. it is. Um, yeah, I I typically just carry a Ruger single stack nine. The only time I'm I'm not carrying that gun, I I recently just picked up a, you know, I I'm tired of a. I was like, man, you know, if I'm just going to a pool party or something, just shorts and a tank top, I need something even smaller than that. So I picked up the little LCP 380. Just so I can, uh, yeah. just as a summer, you know, July, August bad. pocket pistol, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, just to make sure you can always conceal a gun, no matter how you're dressed. You know, I'm a thin guy, I'm 155 pounds. So it's like, sure. you know, it's, it's just a lot of guns, even like the shield is a little bit too big for me to conceal, you know? So mm. it's, uh, yeah. It's yeah. I'm a, a bigger guy, you know, I'm, I'm six one and like two fifty. So, uh, you know, it's easier for me to conceal guns. I could, I used to carry, uh. <laughs> I used to I used to do the old guy thing and I carried a, a 1911 commander uh like a six I think it was a six um scorpion at the time but oh, yeah 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 like and then I then I but but I switched away from that because uh like I could conceal it well on my frame but I don't know it's just uh I wanted more capacity yeah and and an even easier gun to carry and so that's when I switched to uh switch to the the xds i mean they don't make the xds anymore so i wouldn't recommend trying to go out and find that right i did and you know a lot of people wouldn't like the grip safety on it i like the grip safety because if i'm handling it you know at least uh there's some there's a safety that i don't have to think about turning on and off but obviously there are drawbacks to having any kind of safety in that you know you're in a life and death situation and you don't get a extremely proper grip on the gun 
well, it won't shoot. And that's a problem too. So there's all kinds of things, you know, to consider, but it's just your, it just comes down to like your comfort level. Cause you can go down that rabbit hole of preparativeness, right? Well, what if your main gun, some people carry multiple guns, right? Right. Some people have backup guns because what if your main gun doesn't work? What if you get in a shootout with three people at once? Some like you get ambushed by three people. Some people carry an AR in their car because of, because of that, you know, truck right. gun. Um, right. But you just have to kind of, uh, when it comes to carrying guns, you know, beyond the aspect of making sure that you're well-trained and prepared and understanding the laws of where you're carrying, that's the most, you know, important aspect of it. But beyond that, you got to figure out what you're comfortable with. Like, what's your what's your level of risk that you're willing to, to take? I mean, most people, their level of risk is not carrying any gun at all. But if you're carrying a gun, you can easily, if you're someone who's inclined to have that level of preparedness, you can really go down a rabbit hole fast. And so you just have to try and keep a keep a perspective on it for yourself, you know, whatever 100%. you're comfortable with. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Another budget question. Um, your suggestion for a budget optic for an AR. And I don't, once again, there's no specific dollar amount. So whatever you consider budget, I, I I don't know. So three, 400 bucks, 300, call it 300 bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me because I live in, uh, you know, Alexandria, Virginia. So I'm shooting at indoor ranges mostly, and I'm not doing a ton of rifle shooting. So, uh, and I don't, I don't shoot a lot of distance. So uh, I'm using like backup, uh, Magpul sites on my right, AR. Right just as some basic iron sight stuff. Cause you know, if I'm using it for self-defense in my home, I don't need to be, I don't need to be shooting out to a thousand yards. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's what I use. You could get like a nice red, the red dot market is becoming much, much more affordable and reliable. Now there's a lot of great brands out there. Uh, red dot wise, you know, if you're looking for sort of the, the close quarters combat situation, um, uh, and you know, I, I just don't have that much, uh, uh, experience in the, in glass to, to give you like a great, uh, advice on what kind of glass to buy. You know, there there's, I've shot like some super high end, uh, precision rifles, surgeon scalpels and stuff at competitions that have, what is it? Night. Was it? Oh, I can't remember the name of it. There's, there's obviously a lot of high-end brands that do glass and they can cost like five grand. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's yeah. certainly not budget, but, uh, you know, so my experience has been like super low end flip up backup sites by Magpul and like super high end, uh, you know, uh, Long range glass Leopolds and stuff. Yeah. yeah Leopolds and, and, uh, on like surgeon scalpels at competition shooting out to a thousand yards. Like that's, that's, <laughs> so it's not a very, it's probably five, not, five yards or a thousand yards. Is what right. It's not, it's not like a super, uh, complete experience in terms of rifle shooting in my, in my own, uh, life. Yeah. I just had the, the SIG, uh, uh, Romeo five on mine because I don't mm. hunt. I don't, I, I am a hunter. I, I hunt mm -hmm. all the time, but I don't hunt with five, five, six. So my, my AR is just a home defense weapon. Yeah. All I need is a simple one X red dot, which is what that is. Right. It's one yeah. one X. It's super light, simple. And that market's been really uh, improving over the last several years. You know, I was I remember what one of my big mistakes on social media was like, uh, so I, you know, I, I always been skeptical of the red dot market because I was like, why is it so expensive? Uh, it's just a laser that points at some glass, right? So why does <laughs> why do these things cost so much? And then I got roasted, uh, frankly, rightfully. <laughs> by a lot of a lot of people because uh, i went and bought like a cheap uh, now this is for a pistol this is you know uh your your pistol red dots but but i went and bought a cheap one and then it didn't fit my uh although that that is still a problem with the market to some degree because it, it you know the i have a six hour uh p320 x5 the original version which is a fantastic gun i love that gun yeah yeah um and it has an rmr cutout but uh, those early X5s, it, this is another problem. Like those cutouts on, on guns are, I think it's becoming better now. But for a long time, they were all proprietary sizes. Right. And crap. And you had to buy like special adapters. And it's such a, it's such a mess. Uh, I think it's becoming a lot better. But, but, you know, I went out and bought a cheap one and it didn't fit. And it probably wouldn't have been great experience anyway. And so I've learned more about the market since then. It does seem like there's a lot of decent mid-level, you know, two to $300 dollar 
red dot optics for your pistol, RMR t- style optics that uh, that are available out there. And you can use a lot of those on on um, rifles as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it really all depends on what you're trying to do too. Like you're you're going to need a totally different optic for you know your home defense gun that you're you're using you know <laughs> at less than ten yards probably to shoot somebody if you you know if you absolutely because if you're shooting someone further out than that it's going to be a lot of questions raised right oh yeah um but and then you know if you're doing hunting or you're you're target shooting out you know much further you're going to need a totally different kind of optic for that right my backup sights are not going to be great for trying to hit something at 500 yards oh right right yeah i mean for for me i uh i i just never hunt with an ar um, I know a lot of guys that do, I know a lot of guys that, you know, well, you're not allowed to hunt and I, it's probably not even ethical in my opinion to hunt deer with a, a five, five, six, even if you're in a state that allows it. Um, it's just mm. not enough. It's just not, yeah. come on, you know, 62 grain, 55 grain. <laughs> it's just not, you know, you're not putting enough metal downfield. Uh, but I know a lot of guys will, uh, they'll have an AR for their home defense gun, but they also like to hunt varmint, you know, they'll do like coons or, or coyotes or something with their AR. Um, so they'll have, they'll try to like split the difference and they'll have like a one to five X or a one and a half to five X, you know, it's like a yeah. kind of a middle ground. So it's like, you're not going to hit, you're not going to shoot accurately at a thousand yards, but you can shoot accurately at, you know, two fifty three hundred to take out a, a coyote or something like that. So I see a lot of that around here. It's like, you know, you, you never want to put like a, a high powered vor- vortex or Leopold or something. On, yeah. a, on an AR, unless you're unless you're a competition shooter, you know that's kind of the only uh, the only thing. And so I, I have one more personal question because it's something that with me and all my hunting buddies that comes up often here in Ohio. Uh, but I, you said you you don't shoot rifles a ton. Are you f- uh, familiar with a lot of the uh, like the newer straight walled calibers like 450 Bushmaster, 350 Legend? Have you have a lot of experience with those? No, not as much. Um, I'm, you know what I'm interested in though is that new the new military round. Uh, that the, you know, I think a lot of people realize this, but the military adopted a whole new rifle uh, for the infantry. Um, uh, so they're they're supposedly getting rid of the uh, M4s now and and adopting this uh, Sig. How did I uh, miss? How did I miss this? Yeah, I know. Well, there hasn't been much talk about it, but they they officially adopted a brand new rifle from Sig. Uh, it's you know it's it's like the MCX is similar. Yeah. Uh, concept. Uh, there's there's civilian version out there, although they're super rare right now but they've they've adopted i think it was what 6.8 i think it was what it is <clears throat> and it uses this crazy uh um hybrid casing that's like brass and steel oh, you know, it's, it's like not, a steel it's not the 38 uh 38 western is it no or, uh, I don't, I don't 6, 8, so. 6 8 western uh no that's really popular well, out west with hunters but there's no way because that's like no a, it's like a, a brand magnet. new okay it's a it's a brand new round um I think it's six eight SPC. Oh, okay, okay. Is what it's called? If that's right, six eight Remington. Yeah. Um. Either way, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically it's just a bigger. It's just a bigger round. They're worried about like facing, I guess, an enemy that has you know superior body armor that the five five six won't. Uh, right. Won't puncture. So they basically they just up they just went up to the new uh they went they they sort of reverted back to the old philosophy on on military rifles which is to make it um uh you know a bigger um caliber and uh yeah they so they adopted a uh they adopted a new um infantry rifle and a new uh squad automatic weapon is that right um, and so <clears throat> I, I would be really interested in how that all turns out. Yeah. So when it's, are they, is this the, they're rolling this out like this year for the military? Yeah. I believe I they've mean, already started to do that. Um, so yeah, it is 6.8. It's the, basically the civilian version of it is the MCX spear. Okay. Um, so you can, in theory, you can buy it 6.8 by 51 is the, the caliber. Uh, and they, yeah, they did a, uh, um, an LMG light machine gun. So I don't think that, so I think they're sticking with the current, uh, squad automatic weapon, but they're upgrading the, the LMG and the, your basic infantry rifle to these new SIG models that are 
they're basically MCXs. But the the six eight is a two seven seven caliber round. So it seems like they uh they they're it's like an adaptation on the old like two seventy Winchester, similar to like how uh mm-hmm. they updated the thirty out six and created the three oh eight Winchester, just a shorter cartridge. Right. Um, but similar range and stuff like that, way less recoil, all of that. So it seems like a, I mean, yeah, I mean that a two seventy seven is going to give you a heck of a lot more stopping power, you know, and range uh, than over five five six, obviously. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the idea with it. Um, although it also, of course, is going to give you a lot more recoil. Oh yeah. Uh, felt recoil is going to be much higher on this rifle, and I've seen people shooting it, and it's like I don't know. If the, <laughs> we'll see if this how this goes because. Boy, you know, um, it's a lot of felt recoil compared to a M4, you know, an AR. Yeah, uh, you I, know, they're, they're I know the other the, ce- but... the civilian six eight that just came out. I think it was last year, it was like last January. Well, um, Winchester and uh, Browning came out with the six eight Western, and it was, you know, in a, I think it was an improvement on the two seventy uh, Winchester short mag, and it's the super short fat <laughs> it's i think you, you're packing like anywhere from 165 to 175 grain bullets in these little um short magnums 270 short magnums and i mean they give you like you know they give you better accuracy than like the seven millimeter rem mag than the three uh the 300 uh wind mag um but it's it's a six eight so it's a smaller bullet but it still just kicks like a truck you know mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you're you're packing a ton of gunpowder in this tiny little short magnum and it's you know yeah that is it recoil will be interesting you know yeah it'll be really interesting to see how this performs in the field uh i mean that uh, yeah and it's crazy that how little attention this has gotten because i mean the, obviously the i didn't even the m16 <laughs> m4 pattern rifle has been in military service since the 60s yeah and and now they're they're dumping that for this mcx design which is i mean i guess maybe one of the reasons is that it looks fairly similar to an ar it's not though it's a i mean for first off it's a short stroke piston system so it's it's not even the same sort of operating system as as an ar or an m4 and uh and it doesn't have a buffer tube it's got a foldable stock on it instead um you know i mean it's an mcx you know if you've ever if you ever seen an MC, they're fairly popular, right, right. you know, rifles on their own. But uh, it looks a lot like an M4 or, M, or an AR, but it's not the same. They do. They also have this really apparently advanced uh, suppressor system for it that eliminates uh, blowback, which is supposed to be really cool. I think um, I know the Military Arms Channel did a whole podcast talking about this, and they had some really interesting. Uh, observations about i think their main concern was again you know this this recoil it's significantly more recoil than what you get from an m4 um and and then uh, uh forgotten weapons did a video where they where uh ian actually went out and you know was shooting around with the mcx spear which is the same basic design without you know the full auto capability and uh, uh, of course, there you can get the six eight by five one or by fifty one, but but uh, you can only get like the training rounds basically uh, on the civilian side. The the uh, the like the rounds they're going to use in action are are these fascinating uh, hybrid casing rounds because they're higher. I guess they're they're loaded to a higher um, you know, they have more gunpowder in them, and so they they. If you don't use that steel end uh, cap, then the brass will blow out. There's some issue with the – they have to do this hybrid in order to use the full force round. Right. And so it'll, that'll be another interesting thing to see, like how to, how well is that manufacturing process going to hold up to – you know, if, if you're going to supply these things to the entire U.S. military. Well, that's the thing too. Uh, a lot of hunters and, and just shooters get – get really angry when uh these companies will roll out a new caliber like i remember last year when they rolled out the 6.8 western uh when winchester did people were pissed because they're like hey hey man like i'm a hunter i have three different winchester model 70s and different 
old calibers and I can't find ammo anywhere. And you guys are yep. putting all your effort into manufacturing this brand new caliber with rifles, you know, for rifles that nobody's bought yet. So we're like, what are you doing? You're, you're leaving us hanging. So I'm yeah. sure there'll be a little bit of that too. Like we are still in a, technically in an ammo shortage. So it's like, you know, people, right. I know people turn up their nose at, at companies that are focusing on new products when they're like, Man, I can't find thirty out six anywhere. Yeah, you know, I can't find six five Creedmoor anywhere. You know what I mean? So it's like, I right. be a, I'm sure there'll be a little bit of anger, a little bit. Yeah, of same thing for the new. There was a new self defense round that was introduced at, that shot this year that people were excited about. But like, I, you know, <laughs> it's the same idea of like, well, yeah. Do we need another? Like, is what's wrong with everybody's using nine millimeter? Do we need <laughs> yeah. a slightly better version of nine millimeter? I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess yeah, but. Right now, you know, there's there's a whole ammo shortage, and so is it is it better to divert manufacturing to some new round? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, if, people, uh, if, people if will passes, certainly get annoyed by it. If fastest prologue, I think companies will keep answering that question with a solid yes. It it is worth their time to keep developing new stuff, which is cool, man. And it'll be cool, and like eventually prices will go down with the new calibers. And man, I can't believe I haven't, I didn't even heard that. I had no idea that the army was doing that. It's fascinating. But, uh, yep. Stephen, hey, I, I kept you way over time. Thank you so much for the conversation. Let's do it again soon. Uh, where can everybody follow you online, and where can everybody subscribe to The Reload, which I yeah. highly recommend everybody go out and do right now. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, thereload.com is the best place to find me. That's where all my reporting is. Uh, and you can sign up for our free newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning uh, to give you a roundup of the latest gun news. Uh, and if you want more than that, you can – buy a membership and you'll also get the Sunday newsletter and you'll get access to the podcast day early. You'll get the opportunity to be on the podcast, uh, all this great stuff. There's also exclusive members only posts. we got hundreds of those now. Um, so that's the place to be. If you want to find more of my reporting and analysis, um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Steven Gutowski. Everybody check out the reload. Everybody follow Steven. He is great. Uh, that's all I got for today. I am off on vacation next Monday, but I will be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks.